Blog Talk Radio. Given what most Americans believe, the next statement may be more shocking than any previous. The fact is, the United States is not a country, but a corporation contractually created by the Constitution. Your state is a country, per the law, and your original citizenship is of that country. Our founders instituted themselves to be first and foremost citizens of their respective states. As of 1787, those states already had formed a union, and they created the Constitution for the purpose of perfecting that union in forming a national government. They did not intend that the new nation have any jurisdiction or powers over the states or their citizens that were not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. They stated this point quite clearly in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution. They granted the United States exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may become the seat of the government of the United States, our District of Columbia, and to exercise authority over all places purchased by the consent of the state. And that is all. The framers further secured the rights of the people with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments in the Bill of Rights. In the Ninth, they established that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And in the Tenth, they made clear that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. The only way the federal government can have any jurisdiction beyond these constitutional clauses is by written permission or contract. Which leads us to another piece of the puzzle, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1868 following the Civil War. As barbaric as it may sound today, the black slaves prior to the conclusion of the Civil War were legally considered to be property with none of the rights or privileges of free-born people only duties. The money interests took advantage of America's desire to free the slaves and found a way to use the swiftly adopted post-war constitutional amendments to enslave all of the people. The deceit is in the wording of both 13th and 14th amendments. You will note that the 13th amendment provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. But why the emphasis on involuntary servitude? Isn't it the same thing as slavery? Sure it is. But they had to mention the concept of involuntary servitude because they wished to retain another type of slavery, voluntary servitude. Voluntary servitude is an ancient and established concept. It was the way serfs became subjects to their lords during feudal times in England and other European countries. It was a way for free men to earn a living at a time when all property was held by a select few, and thus anyone who wanted to farm and support their family had first to agree to be subject to a lord of the land. Our forefathers hated this concept and designed our Constitution to exclude titles of nobility, making all Americans sovereign. The 14th Amendment turned the intention of the founders on its ear by making voluntary servitude a requirement for former slaves to gain the rights already guaranteed to free-born United States citizens. 
When the slaves were released from their involuntary servitude following the war, their status was changed from that of being property to that of being a person. But being a person still entitled them to none of the rights associated with citizenship. So the 14th Amendment ostensibly was written to provide the former slaves with the same constitutional rights of freeborn American citizens, but only if they agreed first to become subject to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, making oneself paramountly, that is, first subject to the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States, however, limits access to parts of the Bill of Rights, as we'll explain in a moment. But first remember, anyone who voluntarily subjects himself to the laws or jurisdiction of another is, in every way, obligated to abide by the terms of any contracts or laws established by whomever establishes the rules of the contract. In simple terms, this meant that the former slaves became subjects first to the United States and secondly to the state in which they lived. They had no sovereignty whatsoever. This status had never existed in the United States prior to that time. The 14th Amendment created a new class of citizenship in the United States, a second-class citizenship. Up until 1868, every American was a paramount citizen of their state, and by virtue of that, also a citizen of the United States, with full individual sovereignty as guaranteed by Amendments 9 and 10 in the Bill of Rights. But so-called naturalized citizens, or 14th Amendment citizens, are paramountly subject to all laws of the United States, and, having no status as freeborn citizens, have no access at all to the unenumerated rights retained for the people by Articles 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights. That's because, in order to get any rights at all, they had to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, which left them no unenumerated rights. The only rights they had were those specifically written into the Constitution. The sad tragedy of America today is that all U.S. citizens, regardless of race, are now 14th Amendment slaves due to contracts with the government of the United States through Social Security, birth certificates, driving licenses, citizenship statements, tax forms, and many other documents. The true paramount citizenship that all Americans deserve is that of their respective state, which is a sovereign citizenship. Such status would exempt them from federal and state income taxes, as well as property and inheritance taxes. This sovereign citizenship was the status held by our forefathers. Now, if you're still thinking that the U.S. government needs to have a central bank and collect income tax or it will collapse, think again. Over two-thirds of the federal government's income is derived from sources other than income tax. There is even evidence suggesting that none of your income tax is used by the government. Fees, excise taxes, tariffs, sales taxes, and other forms of income have easily supported the U.S. budget in the past and could easily support it now. We have done without a national bank for large stretches of our history, and the U.S. Treasury is perfectly capable of printing and managing a money supply. In fact, the only constitutionally sanctioned currency is backed by gold, or other precious metals. This is a far more stable form of currency and is the type of money the Treasury was designed to handle.
The government was doing so well collecting money under these original laws that it had amassed a huge surplus by the time this cartoon was penned a hundred years later in 1887, when there still was no income tax collected at all. Up to this point, we have shown you how the money interests have, one, established the Federal Reserve System, and two, exploited a second class of citizenship created by the 14th Amendment for other purposes. And we have mentioned a few names involved in the creation of the Fed. But there are other organizations working for our economic enslavement as well, along with other extremely rich and powerful international bankers, those who support the Fed have created a global movement to centralize economic power in various puppet organizations that preach peace and stability through some variation of socialism, but act aggressively to draw nations into a web of foreign debt and servitude to their agenda. The United Nations, the World Monetary Fund, and the Council on Foreign Relations are all committed to an agenda of world domination through manipulation of economic power. The Council on Foreign Relations openly admits to being a private club, yet it is the primary recruiting post in both international banking and the federal government of the United States. Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, John Foster Dulles, Dean Rusk, Alger Hiss, Robert S. McNamara, and every president since FDR, with the exception of John Kennedy, have been members of this exclusive club where super financiers and your elected representatives can mix freely and plan the next step in the consolidation of power in a new world order.
with Joey L, where Remedy meets preparation. Let's turn to that breaking news from the U.S. Supreme Court in the last couple of hours, which has ruled that Americans do have a fundamental right to carry firearms in public. The decision strikes down a New York firearms law and restrictions. Well, Nomia Iqbal is at the Supreme Court. This is a huge victory for pro-guns advocates. So this centers around a century-old law that's been in place in New York, where basically if you want to carry a concealed weapon, you need to apply for a permit, but then you need to justify it. You need to give a special reason for why you need to carry that gun. And that was challenged by two men. And that's now been backed. They have been backed by, in this ruling by the Supreme Court. It was a majority ruling of 6-3. Uh, the conservative majority backed uh, backed uh, those two men and basically found that this law is unconstitutional so they've struck it down so basically what that now means is that uh, you still have to apply for a permit to to carry a concealed weapon but you don't need to justify it uh, with a special reason uh, so that's the ruling that came down from the supreme court i think you know one of the the issues will be, of course, will other states follow? There are other states that have similar rules, such as California, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, for example. So it's yet to be seen if you know, this sets some sort of precedent for them. And Nomia, just in the last few minutes, we've had immediate snapshot reaction from the governor of New York, who's described this decision as a dark day and then gone on to say that uh, it is absolutely shocking that they have taken away our right to have reasonable restrictions. So immediate reaction from the New York governor. But, uh, I mean, people watching this around the world perhaps may be surprised after all of those events we saw in Texas and the direction of travel what the Biden administration has been pushing for. Yes, but I would also add that the, this case has been uh, happening at the Supreme Court for some while now. So before uh, what happened in Uvalde, before the, the mass shooting in Buffalo as well. But yeah, there will be concerns, uh, certainly by leaders at state level. Already New York officials are worried about what this means next, especially in a you know, place like New York where crime is uh, rising. Um, so, yeah, and I think the, the concern is, you know, what happens next? Uh, as I said, will there be other states that follow? I just want to add that there is this uh, bipartisan group of senators that are at the moment uh, trying to find common ground on uh, new laws to to protect America's new gun safety laws, but uh, that's yet to, to, to go anywhere. We've yet to see a vote on that. Well, that was Nomi Iqbal at uh, the Supreme Court. Let's speak now to New York State Senator Luis Sepulveda, who joins us uh, on the program. His Senate district covers large parts of the South and Central Bronx in New York City. Senator, welcome here to BBC News. Uh, your reaction, first of all, to this ruling? Well, as the governor indicated, this is a dark day in our country's history. Uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court now is, is uh, controlled by conservative judges who at one time were critical of activist judges. And this has been one of the most activist courts that we've ever seen. The whole argument about the Second Amendment is so disingenuous because we know that, uh, with all due respect to our British audience, uh, King George hasn't been around in 244 years. Uh, there were muskets that were used back then. You didn't have weapons of mass destruction like you have now, automatic rifles. 
Um, and so the reliance on, on history is just completely disingenuous. Uh, we know that Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, ever since the 2008 Supreme Court by Justice Scalia, a conservative judge says there are issues, uh, there are situations where you can restrict guns. Uh, but Justice Thomas, who's the most fervent advocate of the Second Amendment, was looking for this opportunity to pass this law. Now, I've been warning our state since October because I have followed the decision. Um, the, the decision was issued in October, and I knew because of the composition of the court, the decision that was rendered today was going to happen. Uh, our communities are being devastated by gun violence, devastated. Uh, just a few days ago, we passed one of the most comprehensive package of gun restriction laws in New York State, only to have this decision then essentially nullify a lot of these things. Yep. Uh, we're going to kill many, many children in our community are going to be murdered again, as you've seen in the last few weeks. I'll come to potential consequences in a moment or two, but for people watching around the world, New York had a series of checks and permits. Just explain what now won't happen. Uh, well, look, we have, we have now uh, restrictions on who can purchase a gun. Uh, now, anyone can basically purchase a concealed weapon and carry it around uh, New York State. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, the, the main issue that we have in New York State is the number of guns that are available in circulation. And when you have these, despite us having these restrictive laws, and a lot of the laws that we pass deal with automatic rifles, uh, we, ha we passed one particular bill that was mine that controls the use of ghost guns, uh, which is a major problem in our state. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't restrict the number of guns that are available, what we're trying to accomplish in New York will be nullified because you have even many more guns in, cir in circulation, and that's the problem that we face. Justin Clarence Thomas, uh, you mentioned him in your first answer. He said that to the Constitution, uh, Americans have a right to carry commonly used firearms, and the Second Amendment right to bear arms is not a second-class constitutional right. So that was his reasoning and justification. Other states also uh, have uh, uh, permits and laws around that. Do you think this ruling jeopardizes what happens in those states as well? Oh, absolutely. This is going to be felt throughout uh, the nation. And, you know, I, I, the reliance on the Second Amendment, again, is just so disingenuous. Uh, we know that initially it was white supremacists when we were building this country that wanted to keep their firearms to be able to kill Native Americans and also to subjugate African Americans. That's the real history of the Second Amendment, the way they use the Second Amendment, uh, these gun rights, uh, uh, what I call gun, right, gun rights nuts uh, in this country. Um, there's really no... There's really no uh, justification for allowing people to have these kinds of weapons and to carry weapons, concealed weapons, uh, in our country. Well, well, we let are me facing ask you, a let major me, problem. Let me ask you what potentially you can do about it, because New York City's mayor has been talking in the last little while since this ruling. He said we cannot allow New York to become the wild, wild west. That is unacceptable. Uh, we will do everything in our power, using every legal resource available to ensure the gains we've seen during this administration are not undone. I suppose the obvious question is, what can you do, though, given this ruling? I'm, I'm not sure what we can do. Uh, obviously, any restrictions, any laws that we pass are going to be measured uh, in terms of constitutionality by this decision. Um, so I am not sure yet. Uh, we have to look at every legal avenue of possibility we have in the state to combat uh, this ruling. Uh, it's a terrible ruling. It's going to stress our cities and bring much more gun violence to our communities.
A final 30 seconds, because you will have heard our correspondent at the Supreme Court mention that the Senate is considering that to rare bipartisan gun control bill. Uh, you have that. You have this for the Supreme Court. In 30 seconds, where is America on guns? I'm sad to say that the country that I love is not in a good place right now with guns. Uh, gun sales have skyrocketed 200% when Obama became president and 200% more during the pandemic. There's so many guns in circulation now and people that just refuse to accept sensible, sensible gun laws in this country. Senator, thanks very much for joining us uh, live there from New York. Thanks for your time. Thank you. At this point, you're going to have to match my hustle. Matter of fact, you're going to have to beat my hustle. Inspire me to elevate mine. Welcome to the upside. Let's keep each other up. If you can do that, then you can come see about us. <laughs> you feel me, Mary? Look. Yeah. You got to come see about me. If you really want the truth, then ask me about me. And if you really want the smoke, they roll tree about me. You know I keep a young gunner pushing peep about me. You know God don't play, he keep it cheap about me. Hope you hoes burn your lips trying to get deep about me. If I said two o'clock, it's going to be about three. Might be fashionably late, but I leave out flee. Come on, dawg. I gotta keep my collar clean You niggas couldn't beat me if it was Halloween I see a lot of eye candy, sour power strings But I need soul food, turkey, mac, collard greens Yeah, me and Mary and the yams White Uris had to pull up on Mary and a little lamb Chilly night, I'm rocking a Mary and leather pants And watch Puff Chef sprinkle rosemary over the lamb He told her no way, but tell Jose I got her on the upside, baddies don't pay for nada Rose Colada, Dose and Prada Marrying booby trap, giving Monet to Hada This is powerful, we got Diddy back outside This is big money, it's like Citibank outside Tell them boys who got coins, bring their piggy bank outside And come see about us, what would it be without us, huh? huh? Come, come and see about me, you know A million a good food I bought a coast for two that so we can have two. Come, come and see about me, you know. I'm really in a good mood. You make a move, I make a move, we make a movie. But we got some things to do. Come on, baby. Come on.
you got people who call this theory, um, they call it the collective rights theory. And the collective rights theory of the Second Amendment is such that citizens do not have an individual right to possess guns um, and that the local, state, and federal legislative bodies, therefore, possess the authority to regulate firearms without uh, implicating a constitutional right. And, and this is just a theory. Now, in 1939, the U.S. Supreme Court considered the matter. You can go look at the United States versus Miller case. Um, and the court adopted the collective rights approach at that time. And they determined that Congress could regulate sawed-off shotguns, uh, which moved into interstate commerce under National Firearms Act of 1934 because the evidence did not suggest that the shotgun has some reasonable relationship to the preservation of efficiency of a well-regulated militia. So the court then explained that the framers included the Second Amendment to ensure the effectiveness of the military. Now, I'm going to be honest with y'all, and, and I know that um, a lot of times when we look at the news and stuff, you know, you'll see a lot of shootings happening, a lot of unfortunate stuff with gun violence, right? And we don't know, you know, we, we have to remember propaganda is legal. So, And I'm not saying that people have not lost their lives, but we don't know how much of that is propaganda, okay? Because this precedent stood for nearly 70 years until 2008 when the Supreme Court revisited the issue, um, and this is in the Heller case. And if you've ever heard anything about the Heller case, it was the District of Columbia versus Heller. So the plaintiff, Heller, basically challenged the constitutionality of the Washington, D.C. law, which prohibited the possession of handguns. So in a five to four decision, the court basically struck down the D.C. handgun ban um, as a violation of their right. So the, the court meticulously detailed the history and the tradition of the Second Amendment at that time of the Constitutional Convention. And then they proclaimed that the Second Amendment established an individual right for U.S. citizens to possess firearms. So then the court carved out Miller as an exception to the general rule that Americans may possess firearms, claiming that law-abiding citizens cannot use sawed-off shotguns for any law-abiding purpose. Got people who may disagree with that. Okay, But the court, and what they call indicta, stated that firearm regulations would not implicate an amendment if that weaponry could basically... Uh, be used for law-abiding purposes, right? So the court suggested that the United States Constitution would not disallow regulations prohibiting criminals and the mentally ill from firearm possession, right? So when we talk about these things, we got to really understand what's happening here uh, with firearms, okay? Because there's several questions that remain unanswered as to whether regulations less stringent than the D.C. statute, for instance, implicate the Second Amendment, whether you can have lower courts that will apply their, their dicta or their opinion regarding permissible restrictions, um, and then what level of scrutiny the courts can apply when they analyze a statute that essentially would infringe on your Second Amendment rights, kind of like what happened in New York. So generally in constitutional law, courts subject statutes and ordinances, which we know are special laws, the three levels of scrutiny, depending on the issue at hand. Number one, they look at strict scrutiny. Number two, they look at intermediate scrutiny. And then number three, they look at the rational basis of the claim, of what it is. Okay? So the meaning of the Second Amendment 
depending upon who you talk to. The National Rifle Association, which has a Second Amendment uh, minus the militia clause, engraved on the, the headquarters of the building in Washington, D.C., insists that the amendment guarantees the right of individuals to possess and carry a wide variety of firearms. Now, advocates of gun control contend that the amendment was only meant to guarantee the state the right to operate militias. So for almost 70 years following the cryptic decision of U.S. versus Miller, which happened in 1939, the court basically just the issue. They didn't want to deal with it. So finally, to resolve the question in a much anticipated um, 2008 decision, you got the District of Columbia versus Heller case. Okay, so it's been almost been a little bit over a decade um, since the last gun decision came down. So Miller was subject to two possible interpretations. One was that the Second Amendment is an individual right, but that the right only extends to weapons commonly used in militias. So the defendant Miller basically was transporting sawed-off shotguns. Okay, the second broader term was you know, Miller is that the amendment guarantees no right to individuals at all and that the defendant lost the case as soon as it was obvious that they were not members of a state militia. And this is part of the reason why you have to use your state constitutions, um, you know, when you have issues. Okay? Now, in 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court um, and District of Columbia versus Heller struck down the Washington, D.C. ban on individuals having handguns in their homes. Okay, and this was a five to four majority. And, and uh, Justice Scalia basically found that the right to bear arms to be an individual right consistent with the overriding purpose of the Second Amendment. And this was to maintain a strong state militia. Now, Scalia wrote that it was essential that the operative clause be consistent with the preparatory clause, but that the preparatory clause did not limit the operative clause. The court found that uh, D, that the D.C. law basically violated the Second Amendment's command, but refused to announce a standard of review to apply a future challenge to gun regulations. So the court basically did say that its decision should not cast doubt on laws restricting gun ownership of felons or that or the mentally ill, the mentally ill, um, and that the bans on especially dangerous or unusual weapons would most likely be upheld. Now, in the 2008 presidential campaign, both major candidates said that they approved of the court's decision. Heller left open the question of whether the right to bear arms was enforceable against a state regulation as well as against federal regulations. Now, if we go back a bit to 1876, in 1876, the, the Supreme Court said that the right, if it existed, was enforceable only against the federal government, but there was a wholesale incorporation of Bill of Rights provision into the 14th Amendment since then. Now, when we talk about incorporation, um, you know, you can't you can't talk about this stuff without talking about the incorporation doctrine and all that good stuff, you know, and what they call incorporated against states. So, incorporation in the United States is a doctrine by which portions of the Bill of Rights have been made applicable to states. So when the Bill of Rights was ratified, 
courts held that its protection is extended only to the actions of the federal government and that the Bill of Rights did not place limitations of the authority on the state. Okay, so we gotta go we gotta go post Civil War, right? Essentially like eighteen sixty five, okay, with the thirteenth Amendment, which basically declared the abolition of slavery. Okay, and this gave rise to the incorporation of other amendments at that time too. All right. So when you look at incorporation, when you think about um, you know everything that's happened gradually, right? Various portions of the Bill of Rights have been held to be applicable to the state and the local government. Okay, by incorporation through the 14th Amendment, which they did in 1868, and then the 15th Amendment in 1870. All right. Now, this this is not about whether or not the 14th Amendment is constitutional or not, because you you can obviously see how they're using the 14th Amendment now. They used it to roll back abortion rights. Now they're using it to forward gun con- actually to loosen gun control. Isn't it interesting how they use the 14th Amendment? And the states can't really do too much about it. Right? Um, and I say that because the states are the first 14th Amendment citizens, as we know. Right? So the states have to have to go back and rely on their state constitutions um, as, a, as a prohibitory measure. Okay? So now, the court, in an opinion that was written by Justice Alito, okay, and remember that the Second Amendment has been incorporated through the 14th Amendment, due process clause. Okay, so Justice Alito basically proceeded to strike down Chicago's gun regulation, okay, insofar as it prohibited the private possession in the home of handguns. Okay, um, essentially for self-defense. So then you had Justice Thomas, who came in with his concurring opinion. Who would have held that the right to bear arms uh, to be a, a right that was protected right, by the privileges and the immunities clause of the 14th Amendment? See, we, we keep going back to privileges. Right? 14th Amendment gives you privileges like a child. Okay? Now, an approach to applying the Bill of Rights protection against the state first reject in uh, the 19th century, you go all the way back to what they call the slaughterhouse. Now, um, we move a little bit forward more recently. In 2022, this year, and this is what we'll listen to tonight, uh, New York Rifle Association versus Bruin. The court considered a New York law that made it a crime to carry a handgun in public without a license uh, that could only be obtained by showing some type of, quote, special need. So you need a, quote, special need. Right, living or working in a high crime area doesn't suffice for you to have a gun. They said. Now, in a six-to-three vote, the court ruled that the New York law violated the Second Amendment. They've been doing that. They they knew that a long time ago. It's just nobody brought it forth. Now, Justice Thomas, in his opinion for the court, said that when a law seems to to violate the plain text of the Second Amendment, the law is unconstitutional. 
unless the government can show historical practices which regulated the use of arms that were analogous to the regulation in question. Now, in this case, the court found basically little support, though it conceded that there was some. Now, for bans on the carrying of guns in public, the history of the United States, either at the time of the amendment's adoption or decades that followed. Okay? So, um, if you want cases on this, there's a ton of them out there. And I, I do recommend that you get some of these cases, get you certified copies of some of these cases. Go get United States versus Miller, 1939. Go get the District of Columbia versus Hitler, 2008. Get you a certified copy of McDonald versus Chicago. Get you a certified copy of New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin. See, I recommend that you get copies of these cases because if you're fighting a gun case, if you have issues with gun cases, you need to be able to show where your Second Amendment rights need to be upheld. Supreme Court did that for a lot of individuals. Granted, they didn't do the same for women when it came to abortion rights, which is unfortunate for a lot of people. But they did that on gun rights. Now, there's some questions that you should have in, in your mind here. And the questions are, does the historical evidence support the conclusion that the Second Amendment guarantees the right of individuals to possess firearms? Number two, if the Second Amendment does create an individual right, how broad is that right? right? Does it include the right to possess arms that would include a useful right to use the gun, like basically useful to a militia today, right? Because you got shit like hand grenades, you got rocket launchers, etc., right? Or does it create only a right to possess arms that would have been used by a militia in 1791, a.k.a. using shit like muskets, okay? Or is the right answer somewhere between these extremes, okay? The third thing that you should ask yourself is the Second Amendment, it speaks of the right to bear arms, but does this suggest, for example, that there is no right to possess weapons that could not be carried, such as cannons, right? What if niggas wanted to start carrying cannons again? Okay. The fourth thing you should ask yourself is if the underlying concern okay, that inspired the Second Amendment, which is fear of an abusive federal government oppressing states and their citizens no longer exist, should that affect how we interpret the amendment? Okay. The fifth thing is what is the argument for choosing what provisions of the Bill of Rights we will give full effect to. What's the provision? Is there one? Was there ever one? Sir? The sixth thing is, which of the following regulations of firearms is constitutional? Uh, number one, age restriction. Two, uh, the, the four-day waiting period that you got to wait on purchasing firearms. I remember when I went to go get a firearm, a, 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 a firearm or a, you know, a arm. They told me I had to wait seven days. They didn't give me a reason. And then they said, look, if we don't call you, just come pick it up. They didn't even call me. I had to go pick it up. 
Okay. So there's the wait period. Then, then there's the ban on carrying concealed weapons. Okay. The next thing that you should ask yourself is, is the court in the District of Columbia versus Heller. It announced that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms, right, for self-defense. But it says that the right extends only to weapons in common use for such purposes. So if many people begin using machine guns for self-defense, would weapons covered by the Second Amendment extend to include them? Okay. The next thing is the court in D.C. versus Heller. It suggests that concealed carry laws and laws prohibiting guns in public buildings are constitutional. Why is that so? What test should the court use to evaluate future gun regulations, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and undue burden tests? Because when people run to schools with guns and you got innocent children that are getting killed, there's a problem. Yet, if you go to a concert outside in a public space, but there's no security, you want to feel safe by having a pistol on you, right? See how it goes twofold? Now, in 2011, the Seventh Circuit Court struck down the Chicago Ordinance that requires range training before getting a gun permit, noting that the city also bans all firing ranges in the city. The court found that the range training requirements would violate the Second Amendment. So the court applied uh, a heightened scrutiny to the regulation saying that the law substantially burden the core right of gun ownership and that it will require an extremely strong public interest justification and a close fit between the government uh, and a means to its end. Okay? So, and, and we, we got to understand that when we're talking about gun rights, like I live in, you know, I, listen, I live between two states who essentially you have the right to Conceal and carry without a permit, but before they change the laws here, before before they recognize that the Constitution and the Second Amendment took precedent, you had to go to the sheriff first. You had to go to the sheriff. You had to go get a permit from the sheriff. Now you can still go get a conceal and carry permit for the sheriff, but it doesn't really make a difference here. It makes more of a difference in other states. You understand? So if you want to take your gun, you know, to the West Coast or somewhere else that has what they call reciprocity agreement, then you could do so. Okay. Now, New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment. Okay, by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment rights, keeping their arms in a public place self-defense. Okay. So if we go back and look at the District of Columbia case versus Heller, the court held that the, the, the Second and the Fourteenth Amendment protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. So under Heller, when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects conduct and then to justify a firearms regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. You see, they got to show 
a precedent that's happened. And so it's got to be some type of precedent. So essentially, and, and we'll we'll hear this tonight because we hear the argument, but the historical analyst, right, can sometimes be difficult when, when we're looking at, you know, do you have a right to carry a gun? All right, so we're going to get into this tonight. We're right here on the bottom line. It's a lot to take in, but we're going to take it all in. We're going from the bottom to the top tonight. We're going to listen to um, the oral argument. It was done November 3rd, 2021. This is New York Rifle Association. All right. Um, it's a very interesting case. This is um, New York Rifle Association versus Bruins. All right. Uh, we probably won't get through the whole argument tonight, um, but we'll get to as much of it as we can. All right. So sit back. Take a seat. Maybe take some notes. Listen in. Here we go. We will hear argument this morning in case 2843, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Mr. Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The text of the Second Amendment enshrines a right not just to keep arms, but to bear them. And the relevant history and tradition exhaustively surveyed by this court in the Heller decision confirm that the text protects an individual right to carry firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense. Indeed, that history is so clear that New York no longer contests that carrying a handgun outside of the home for purposes of self-defense is constitutionally protected activity. But that concession dooms New York's law, which makes it a crime for a typical law-abiding New Yorker to exercise that constitutional right. This court in Heller labeled the very few comparable laws that restricted all outlets for carrying firearms outside the home for self-defense outliers that were rightly condemned in decisions like none against Georgia. New York likens its law to a restriction on weapons in sensitive places. But the difference between a sensitive place law and New York's regime is fundamental. It is the difference between regulating constitutionally protected activity and attempting to convert a fundamental constitutional right into a privilege that can only be enjoined by those who can demonstrate to the satisfaction of a government official that they have an atypical need for the exercise of that right. That is not how constitutional rights work. Carrying a firearm outside the home is a fundamental constitutional right. It is not some extraordinary action that requires an extraordinary demonstration of need. Petitioners here seek nothing more than their fellow citizens in 43 other states already enjoy. And those states include some of the most populous cities in the country. Those states, like New York, limit the firearms in sensitive places, but do not prohibit carrying for self-defense in any location typically open to the general public. I'm happy to continue by point. Uh, uh, Mr. Clement, um, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, the um, If we analyze this um, and use history, tradition, text of the Second Amendment, we're going to have to do it by analogy. So 
can you give me a regulation on in history that is a basis that would form a basis for a legitimate regulation today if we're going to do it by analogy what would we analogize it to what would that look like well your honor i suppose if you're going to reason by analogy then you could you know go back and you could find analogous restrictions relatively early in our nation's history about prohibiting certain types of firearms or having firearms in or any weapon really in certain sensitive locations and i think you could reason in that way here i think the reasoning works the opposite direction which is you typically have a baseline right to carry for self-defense and the only historical analogs that really restricted the right of a typical law-abiding citizen to carry for self-defense to the same degree as the New York law here were those laws, very few, typically post-Reconstruction laws that purported to eliminate any right to carry openly or concealed. And those, court, those, those laws were essentially invalidated, individual rights view of the Second Amendment. And those decisions, of course, were exhaustively considered by this court in Heller and those decisions were praised for their understanding of the Second Amendment and the relationship between the prefatory clause and the operative clause. And equally important, the, the, those laws were set forth by this court and singled out by this court as the very few restrictions historically that were comparable to what the District of Columbia was doing in Heller. So if we look at the, you mentioned the founding and you mentioned post-Reconstruction, um, uh, but if we are to analyze this based upon um, uh, the history or tradition, should we look at the founding or should we look at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, which then, of course, applies it to the states? So, Justice Thomas, I suppose if there were a case where there was a contradiction between those two, um, you know, and the case arose in the states, I would think there'd be a decent argument for looking at the history at the time of Reconstruction um, as, you know, and, and, and giving preference to that over the founding. I think for this case and for Heller, and I think for most of the cases that will arise, I don't know that the original founding history is going to be radically different from that at Reconstruction. But I guess what I would say is I do think that's about where it stops. Because the point here isn't to look at history for the sake of studying history. The point is to look at the history that's relevant for understanding the original public meaning of the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment. Mr. Clement, Clement how could it stop there? In Heller, we made very clear that laws that restricted felons from carrying uh, or possessing arms and laws that uh, uh, forbade uh, mentally ill people from doing the same um, we, you know, basically put the stamp of approval on those laws, and those laws really came about in the 1920s, didn't they? Uh, you know, Justice Kagan, I, I, I think some of those laws in their current form took that shape in the 1920s, but I also think there was a tradition from the beginning for keeping certain people outside of the group of people that were eligible for possession of firearms. I, you know, I think obviously there's a different tradition with respect to felons, um, in part because, you know, you start at the time of the framing and most felonies are capital crimes. So, you know, the, the, the need to disenfranchise felons for uh, firearm possession was a little different at the framing. So I think you do need to make those kind of adjustments. 
Um, but I think those adjustments can be made. I think really there are two reasons to at least be skeptical of post-1871 history. I mean, the first is I just don't really understand why it's terribly relevant in forming the original public meaning of the Constitution. But of course, the second reason is it's just about that time that the collective rights view started to creep into the decisions of some state Supreme Courts. And I think, so in Heller's a perfect example that this court didn't absolutely stop its analysis in 1871. But when it looked at those later sort of post-bellum uh, state Supreme Court decisions, the ones that re relied on a collective rights view were given very short shrift. And I think that's the appropriate way to sort of deal with these historical analogs. Uh, two, two questions. One, one is on history. I mean, it's law, it's history. Uh, in McDonald, we had professors of history ran departments of the English Civil War, and they all said the history in Heller was wrong. You've read the briefs here. I don't know. You read the briefs of the historian of the Air Force? And she says it's this way, and the other one said it's the other way. How are we supposed to deal with that? Uh, there's a good case. This is a wonderful case for showing both sides. So I'm not sure how to deal with the history. Uh, and uh, my other question is I'm not sure what New York does. We're talking here about outside New York City. New York says we have about 90,000 licenses to carry concealed weapons, or maybe it's 40,000, or maybe it's 10,000, but there's been no trial, there's been no proceeding, all it is is dismissal on the... So, so, so how are we supposed to find out, A, what the history is, which is my minor question, really. There's a lot of debate on that. But uh, second, how are we supposed to know what we're talking about in terms of what New York does, since they say they give, including to one of your clients, they give a license to carry a concealed weapon. So there are concealed weapon licenses all over the place. So, so w w what are we supposed to do about those two things? Well, Justice Breyer, let me start with the major question, which is, because I think that's actually very straightforwardly answered, which is there's no serious question about the experience of the individual petitioners in this case. And they both sought unrestricted licenses, and they were both denied unrestricted licenses, it, notwithstanding that they satisfy every other requirement that the state has to be licensed for concealed carry. And so I'm happy to debate why the state statistics don't really prove anything particularly relevant, but I, I think they're irrelevant for a more fundamental reason. I mean, you know, if there was a debate between the parties about whether 95% or 90% of the citizens of New York were denied their confrontation rights in criminal trials, but you had before you two individuals who were clearly denied the right to confront the witnesses against them, you wouldn't worry about the other 95% well, or the other 90%. That's not really the way your brief is written. The way your brief is written is to say, you know, this is um, uh, a, a, a regulatory scheme that deprives most people of the right to carry arms and self-defense. And your brief puts a lot of emphasis on that. Like, don't believe the state that they're going to really take seriously people's need for self-defense because they always reject these licenses. You know, if you had a bunch of statistics which suggest that the state is quite sensitive to people's need for self-defense and gives these licenses a significant amount of the time, you might think differently about the regulatory scheme, wouldn't you? I mean, that's the way your brief reads to me. Well, Justice Kagan, two points. One is 
I wouldn't feel any differently with respect to my two individual clients who were denied their right to exercise their Second Amendment rights. But more broadly, the reason I'm so confident that this regime is problematic on its face is because on its face, at least as interpreted by the highest court in New York, the requirement you need to show in order to carry concealed for self-defense but not for hunting and target practice, is you have to show that you have a need for self-defense that distinguishes you from the generalized community, from the general community. So New York's law on its face says that the only way that you can carry for self-defense is if you demonstrate your atypicality with respect to your need for self-defense. So and that's that? Because, look, Mr. Koch can. Uh, he has his license. He can carry it for self-defense. Uh, on the license to and from work, and as you say, can carry it for hunting, target practice, etc. Concealed, and in your opinion, uh, is it supposed to say you can carry a concealed gun uh, around uh, the streets of the town or outside just for fun? I mean, they are dangerous guns. I mean, so, so what's it supposed to say? It's, it's supposed to be what New York says that they give to lots of applicants, at least in other counties, which is an unrestricted license, which basically means that somebody who has demonstrated to the state that they're of good moral character, that they have all the necessary uh, training, whatever the, the 40,000 or 50,000 or 60,000 is not enough. You have to show you have a good moral character. And then if you just would like to uh, uh, carry a concealed weapon, uh, which is a dangerous thing, as I said. You can just do it just, that's what the fourth, that's, in your opinion, that's what you want. No restrictions. Well, it, it, certainly New York is entitled to have laws that say that you can't have weapons in sensitive places, in addition to whatever no, regulations. No, I'm not saying that. And and New York has those laws, and we don't challenge those. What, we would, what we're asking for, I mean, one way to think about it is we're asking that the regime worked the same way for self-defense as it does for hunting. When my clients go in and ask for a license to concealed carry for hunting purposes, what they have to tell the state is they have an intent to go hunting. They don't have to say, I have a really good reason to go hunting. I don't have to say, I have a better reason to go hunting than anybody else in my general community. And yeah, well, the difference, of course, you have a concealed weapon to go hunting. You're out with an intent to shoot, say, a deer or a rabbit, which has its problems. But here, when you have a self-defense just for whatever you want to carry a concealed weapon, uh, you go shooting it around and somebody gets killed. With respect, Justice Breyer, that's not been the experience in the 43 jurisdictions that allow their citizens to have the same rights that my, my clients are looking for. This is not something where we're asking you to take some brave new experiment that no jurisdiction in Anglo-American history has ever, has ever done. Mr. may I? You're talking about 43 other jurisdictions. And I suspect that when we get into those 43 other jurisdictions, that there are going to be a handful that are identical. The one thing that I've looked at in this history is the plethora of regimes that states pick. And that starts in English law, through the college, through post Constitution to post-Civil War to um, the 19th century to even now, those 43 states that you're talking about, most of them didn't give unrestricted rights to carry in one form or another until recent times. 
before recent times, there were so many different regulations. What it appears to me is that the history tradition of carrying weapons is that states get a lot of deference on this. And the one deference that you don't haven't addressed is the question presented is what's the law with respect to concealed weapons? In 1350, the British Parliament specifically banned the carrying of concealed arms. In colonial America, at least four, if not five states, restricted um, concealed arms. Um, after the Civil War, there were many, many more states, some included in their constitution, that you can have a right to arms but not concealed. You can go to Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, which are now more open, are more free in granting the right to carry guns, but they prohibited you through their history concealed weapons, the carrying of concealed weapons. Um, it seems to me that if we're looking at that history and tradition with respect to concealed arms, that there is not the same um, re requirement that there is in the home. One of the things Heller pointed to was there were few regulations that prohibited the carrying or the keeping of arms in homes. But that's not true with respect to the regulations about um, keeping of arms outside of homes. Putting aside the, the prohibitions, regulations on sensitive places, regulations on the types of people, um, it seems to me that I don't know how I get past all that history. Well, Without you making it up and saying there's a right to control states that has never been exercised in the entire history of the United States as to how far they can go in saying this poses a danger. So Justice Sotomayor, I, I, there's a lot to that question. I'll try to take it you know, sequentially if I can. I mean, you know, let's start with concealed carry restrictions. I mean, it is true that during time periods where open carry was allowed, that some states did specifically restrict concealed carry on the precise theory that if we allow you to carry open, then if you're carrying concealed, you're probably up to no good. And Heller did exhaustively survey those cases. And what it concluded is that if a state allows open carry, then it can prohibit concealed carry, I suppose vice versa. But you're and asking us to make the choice for the legislature. We're only looking at concealed here. We are not asking you to make that. And I will tell you are, because you're conditioning history on a different fact. I don't think we're asking for anybody to make that choice. In fact, the relief we've asked for is to have an unrestricted license because under New York law, as it currently exists, that's the only way that you can have a carry right for a handgun. But in framing our relief in the complaint, we you know, framed it so that there are other relief consistent with the decision. So if New York really wanted to say, you know, no, we have a particular problem with concealed carry, notwithstanding that traditionally that's the only way we allow people to carry. If they want to shift to an open carry regime, 
they could do that consistent with everything we said here. Now, I don't think anybody expects that to happen because if you look at the New York law specifically, it's a law that prohibits the carrying of handguns except for permit holders. And then its provisions about permit holders speak specifically to concealed carry. So that's why we've framed our request the way we have. But what we're doing, I think, is completely consistent with the majority decision in Heller's analysis of the historical cases, which said that those very few states that tried to prohibit both concealed carry and open carry and so gave no outlet for the right to carry a firearm for self-defense outside the home, those were the laws that the Heller majority identified as being analogous to the D.C. restriction in Heller that was validated. I do know that many of the laws conditioned um, or retain the right of the state to decide which people were eligible. And the historians to carry the arms, that you had to be subject to the approval of the local sheriff or the local mayor, etc. And during the Civil War, that was used to, to deny black people the right to hold arms. We now have the 14th Amendment to protect that. But why is a good cause requirement any different than that discretion that was given to local officials to deny the carrying of firearms to people that they thought it was inappropriate, whether it was the mentally ill um, or any other qualification? I, that's how I see the good cause as sitting in with, within that tradition. So let me make a point about how it's so different from that tradition, but then also let me make a historical point. This, it's radically different to say that if you are a typical New Yorker, so you, qualify, you satisfy every other qualification, you're not a felon, you don't have any mental health problems, you've done everything else we've asked you, but you are typical in the sense that you don't have an atypical need to carry for self-defense. I don't think there's any historical analog to that. As to the historical examples, with all due respect, I, I don't think I read the surety laws the same way that you do. Those surety laws, which were only in, in, in place in a minority of jurisdictions, but nonetheless, I think they help us. Because those surety laws, first of all, start with the proposition that there's a baseline right for every person, every member of the people protected by the Second Amendment to care. And what they do is if somebody essentially as a complainant can come into court and say that somebody is has a propensity to use them in an offensive or violent way, then if you satisfy a neutral fact finder, then you don't automatically get to disarm that person. You put them to the choice of posting a surety, and then they can continue to possess their firearm. Mr. Clement, you, in your opening, you talked about the right applying in any location typically open to the general public. I'd like to get some sense about what you uh, believe could be off limits, like university campuses. Could they say you're not allowed to carry on a university campus? So, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I think the answer to your question is yes. Um, and I think that what I would say, though, first of all, is the language I was talking about, any location open to the general public, mm -hmm. that's right from the license denial on Joint Appendix page 40, 41. So I, there wasn't loose language on my part. That's, it, that's right there from where we are told in capital letters where we cannot carry any location, all caps, typically open. Well, what to sort of place do you think they could be? excluded from. In other words, you can get a permit, but the state can impose certain restrictions. For example, uh, any place in which alcohol is served. 
So they say you cannot carry your gun in any place where alcohol is served. So, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think probably the right way to look at those cases would be look at them case by case and say, okay, in this court in Heller, for example, said sensitive places include government buildings and schools. Um, I think those you can probably tap into a pretty good tradition. I think any place that served alcohol would be a, 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 you know, a tougher case for the government. I think we would have a stronger case. Um, they might be able to condition the license holder on not consuming any alcohol. There might be a variety of laws, and we could have those debates. But what about a uh, football stadium? I, I, I think, again, football stadium, you'd probably take it on its own um, and, and look to the historical analogs. But here's, I guess, if I could offer some general principles, um, I think there's two principles. One is... Um, you know, restriction of access to the place is something that I think would be consistent with the way government buildings have worked and schools have worked. Not any member of the general public can come in there. They restrict access with or, with or without a gun. If you're an adult that has no business to be in a school, you're excluded. So I think that's a factor that would support um, treating that as a sensitive place. A second principle that I would offer is these sensitive place restrictions really are a different animal than a carry restriction because I think a true sensitive place restriction is not just going to limit your ability to carry concealed, but it's going to be, say, this is a place where no weapons are allowed. Um, you know, whether they're firearms or other weapons, no weapons are allowed. And then the third point that I would say, and this is just an analogy, but I think it's a useful analogy, is I think the way to think about this is a little like the non-public forum doctrine in the First Amendment, which is you, you start with the place and you try to understand, is this a place, given the nature of the place, its function, its restrictions on access, that weapons are out of place? And if so, that's probably a sensitive place. For so, but, state but I think what the Chief Justice is trying to do is figure out how those cash out in the real world. So I'll give you a few more. New York City subways. So, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the question of whether you could restrict arms in the subways, you know, I mean, you, you'd have to go through the analysis, I think, and say, you know, is there a restriction on access generally, I suppose? No, I mean, I got the analysis, okay. all three parts of it. Like, how does it cash out? What does it mean? You know, I, I don't know how those are going to cash out in particular cases, because I think the way that you would normally deal with that is, you'd ha you know, look at all the briefing we had in this case on the history of these various things. And so, you know, on behalf of my individual clients, I suppose I could give away the subway because they're not looking to go, you know, they're not in Manhattan, the they're in Rensselaer County. started with universities and you said that that would be all right. Did you mean that? Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I, I did mean that. Because that's open for, you know, anybody can walk around the NYU campus. Well, NYU doesn't have much of a campus. <laughs> I, I, would, uh, I would go back to New York, and I think you'll find that that's wrong. Similarly, the Columbia campus. Columbia's got a campus, and I don't know whether they restrict access there to, at all. Um, and, and, you know, and maybe, you know, if they don't restrict access to parts of the campus, maybe those are parts of the campus where they wouldn't enforce the policy anyways. I, I, the point I'm trying to make, But though, you can't say, uh, you know, um, there are uh, 50,000 people in one place, you know, a, a, a ballpark. There are 50,000 people in one place. They're all on top of each other. We don't want guns there. That's you. You couldn't. The, the the city or the state couldn't do that. I, I think they might well be able to, because again, you can't get into Yankee Stadium without a ticket. I'd have to understand. In the you know many of these, you know, I don't know every jurisdiction. I don't know enough about Yankee Stadium. 
But, you know, a lot of these stadiums are not run by the government anyway. So if a private entity wants to restrict access, uh, I don't know where the state action is. for the state says uh, no protest or event that has more than 10,000 people. I, I, I think that might be, a, you know, trickier. Maybe they could justify that under strict scrutiny, but I don't think that would be a sensitive places. But why not? I mean, I guess it's about the level of generality. All these questions that Justice Kagan is asking you or that the chief asked you, if, if you concede, as I think the historical record requires you to, that states did um, outlaw guns in sensitive places, can't we just say Times Square on New Year's Eve is a sensitive place because now we've seen, you know, people are on top of each other. We've, we've had experience with violence. So we're making a judgment. It's a sensitive place. So here's what I would suggest, that the right way to think about limiting guns in Times Square on New Year's Eve is not as a sensitive place, but as a time, place, and manner restriction. And that might be a perfectly reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. But I don't think that's the sensitive places doctrine, as I understood it, from, and obviously it's a brief reference in the Heller decision, so I, I may not fully understand it. But I understood that those were certain places where they were just no weapon zones all of the time because of the nature of that institution. And I think it's probably worth thinking about rallies and Times Square. There may be restrictions, but they would be done well, under the rubric of time, place, and Could we start with the purpose of the personal right to keep and bear arms and the core purpose of that right, putting aside the military aspect, uh, is self-defense. So starting with that, could we analyze the sensitive place question by asking whether this is a place where uh, the state uh, has taken alternative means to safeguard the, uh, those who frequent that place. If it's a, if it's a place like a, a courthouse, for example, a government building where everybody has to go through a magnetometer and there are security uh, officials there, that would qualify as a sensitive place. Now, that doesn't provide a mechanical answer to every question, and, uh, uh, but it, it, would that be a way of, of, of beginning to analyze this? Justice Lito, that might be a way of analyzing it. The reason I'm a little bit reluctant to go that route as opposed to really think about the nature of the place and the restrictions that are associated with its core activity is because I worry that if you went that direction, then the state would say, well, you know, this part of the city, we have a lot of police officers. And so you really don't need to exercise your own individual self-defense right there because we, we have your back. And I don't know what those places would be, but... Um Continue. Well, I think my friends would tell you that, you know, the whole city of New York is that way. And I, I think there are a lot of people in New York and New York may have uh, a lot of reasons to have regulations that are a little bit different than in upstate New York, where my individual petitioners reside. But I don't think that they can take all those people in New York and deny them of their fundamental constitution. How, how do we do How? I mean, so far we've been, uh, in, to my mind, I think NYU does have a campus. Uh, you're not certain. All right. Uh, you think that uh, in New York City, uh, people should have considerable freedom to carry concealed weapons. I think that people of good moral character who start drinking a lot and who may be there for a football game or, or some kind of soccer game can get pretty angry at each other. And if they each have a concealed weapon, who knows? And there are plenty of statistics in these briefs 
to show there are some people who do know. And a lot of people end up dead. Okay? So, uh, what are we supposed to do? To sort of float around, like with NYU, and say, uh, hey, oh, this is the rule. It seems to work out in upstate New York. We don't know, of course, and we do know that your client is carrying a concealed weapon because he has a right to in some instances, and uh, even following Heller and following the history, which I thought was wrong. Uh, even so, what are we supposed to say, in your opinion, that is going to be clear enough that we will not produce a kind of uh, gun-related chaos. So, Justice Breyer, I would sort of point you to two things that maybe would give you some comfort. I mean, one is the experience of the 43 states, and there are amicus briefs on both sides getting into the empirical evidence, but there isn't the case that those 43 states that include very large cities like Phoenix, like Houston, like Chicago, they have not had demonstrably worse problems with this than the five or six states that have the regime that New York has. So that's one place to look. The other place that I think you would find some, some, something persuasive there is their own amicus brief on their side by the city of Chicago. Because the city of Chicago is in a shall-issue jurisdiction. Um, and the city of Chicago goes on to sort of, you know, essentially brag about all of the ways that they've done consistent with that regime to reduce crime in Chicago that probably doesn't have a direct analog in downstate Illinois. But, of course, you know, what, one of the problems with this case – I mean, most people think that Chicago is like the, the world's worst city with respect to gun violence, Mr. Clement. Chicago and their corporate and Chicago doesn't think that, but everybody else thinks it about Chicago. And nobody thinks that about Phoenix, and nobody thinks that about Houston, and nobody thinks that about Dallas, and nobody thinks that about San Diego, which even though it's in a uh, restricted state, is a shall-issue jurisdiction. Mr. Clement, Thank you, uh, Mr. Clement. Justice Thomas, anything further? Um, Mr. Clement, uh, where's Mr. Nash live? Mr. Nash lives in Rensselaer County, New York. Is that close to NYU? That is nowhere near NYU, uh, Justice Thomas. And, you know, I think if you, if you look at their, the county website, they talk about their 153,000 people spread over 955 square miles. And yet that's the context in which my individual clients are being denied their Second Amendment rights. Justice Breyer, anything further? Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor? Counselor, your client is permitted to Mr. Nash, one of the two, to carry when engaged in outdoor activities of any kind, like camping, hunting, and fishing on back roads. Um, with the few substantially less than the number of people, tell me how many places in Rensselaer County does your client have a self-defense risk. Well, Sir, I mean, at, at what point do we look at the restriction and the burden it places? Meaning, yes, I'm sure it has a center of town. I'm sure it may have a shopping center or two. But it's not like he's totally restricted from carrying a gun. He's just restricted from carrying one basically in those sensitive places because well, the rest of his home 
is pretty distant from each from other homes. So Justice Sotomayor, just so we start on the same wavelength or the same page, literally page 41 of the joint appendix, this tells Mr. Nash where he can carry concealed. And what the officer McNally told him was, quote, I emphasize that the restrictions are intended to prohibit italicized you from carrying concealed in any location all caps any location typically open to and frequented by the general public now I that's would submit point. that's that's a pretty broad number of places in Rensselaer County and it would include I fear um, most of the roads in the county at night when you're traveling and might think that you have a need. I mean, if, if Mr. Nash has a relative whose car breaks down and has to have a, a change of tire and he wants to go out and assist them with that and wants to make sure that he is, he, he is in a position to defend himself, I don't think he can do it consistent with this license restriction. And at the end of the day, I think what it means to give somebody a constitutional right is that they don't have to satisfy a government official that they have a really good need to exercise it or they face atypical risks. Justice Kagan, anything further? Uh, Mr. Clement, you, you said, I think, in passing that it would be fine if uh, New York uh, banned open carry so long as it con uh, allowed concealed carry. Is that correct? It, certainly that's consistent with the relief we're looking for. We're looking for some outlet to exercise our constitutional right to carry firearms outside the home. How is it consistent with the history? I mean, the history seems very clear to me that it's sort of like the exact opposite of how we think about it now. In other words, that there are lots of places that uh, wanted people to display their arms as a matter of transparency, and what they prohibited was the concealed carry. So I'm, I'm thinking like if you look to the history, you end up with a completely different set of rules from the ones that you are suggesting with respect to concealed versus open. And it's, a, it's an example, I think, of, uh, of the difficulties of looking to history where people were operating on such uh, different, to uh, use your term, wavelengths. So, uh, Justice Kagan, first of all, I would have thought that, you know, we'd sort of cross the bridge to use history in this context in Heller. But if we're going to look to history, I actually think it, it – Mr. Clement, the question is how to use history. And, you know, where do you look – you know, how far do you look? Do you look to the 1920s when all these uh, felon um, uh, laws were passed as well as public purpose laws of exactly the same kind as New York? So one question is how far up do you look? Another question is, you know, with what sense of flexibility do you look? And I think that this is an example of that. It's like, no, we're not going to ask for an exact analog because we realize that the world has changed and regulatory schemes are very different because regulatory interests are very different. If we tried to copy history, we would find ourselves in a world in which the only thing that a state could do is uh, tell people, you know, you can't carry it concealed. You have to carry it open. So, Justice Kagan, let me give you an example of how I think the court should use history in this context. And I'll go exactly to the Georgia statute that was at issue in None Against Georgia. Now, that was a statute that on its face prohibited carrying simpliciter. Um, so it didn't say open. It didn't say concealed. Now, the court that analyzed that 
reversed, vacated the indictment of somebody under the statute um, because the statute didn't specify and they didn't think that person had carried concealed. But when they looked at it, they interpreted it in light of the context at the time, and they thought, boy, it is not consistent with the Second Amendment. The Georgia Act, that court actually thought directly applied to the state, which is interesting. But, but they said that's not consistent with the Second Amendment to prohibit any means for carrying. Then consistent with kind of the norms of the time, kind of almost as like a severability holding, dare I say it, they said, well, all right, the open carry that's allowed. I mean, rather, that's that's we're going to say that to the extent this statute prohibits open carry, that's unconstitutional. But to the extent that it prohibits concealed carry, that's constitutional. Now, the, the, the fundamental problem with the law that carries over as a direct analogy is it gave no outlet to exercise the constitutional right to carry for self-defense. The norms of the time had a favoring for open carry over concealed. I will grant you that the norms of the time have flipped, and certainly in New York, based on the rest of their licensing regime, I assume that they would prefer that my clients carry concealed rather than openly. But I think that's the way you can use the history, and you can use it with some contextual sensitivity, but you cannot sort of you know, throw it all out, because I do think the analogy is pretty clean between a law that prohibits any form of carry and what New York is doing here. And, of course, that was one of the laws that this court specifically looked to in the Heller decision as and, well. And when you look at this history in the properly contextual way, do you see no difference between the kind of regulation that was allowed in the home and the kind of regulation that was allowed in public places? Because it seems to me that the history and, and Justice Sotomayor developed it at some length, but the history is replete with that distinction. That the, and, and indeed, Heller recognizes that. Heller recognizes that the home is a very special place, um, both because, you know, for similar reasons for the Fourth Amendment, but also because the need for self-defense is so much greater there. So I think in terms of – I'm not going to tell you that the context doesn't matter at all. I mean, take sensitive places law, right? They just – they don't really affect the keep right the way that they affect the carry right, unless you try to say the entirety of Manhattan is a sensitive place, and then they might affect both. But in general, the, the analysis is going to be slightly different. But I would say that you know I don't think those differences are material here. I think if the district, instead of just banning handguns inside the home, had adapted a permitting regime that required district residents to show that they had an atypical need to possess a handgun inside the home, I'm not sure anything in Heller would have been different because it's just inconsistent with a constitutional right to either ban the exercise of it or say that it's a privilege that you can only exercise if you show that you are atypical from the rest of the people who are equally protected by the constitutional right. Thank you. Mr. Clans, are you, are you able to hear me? Loud and clear. Great. Um, uh, some of your amici have asked us to provide further guidance to lower courts in cases beyond your own. And so putting aside your, your case for the moment, um, they pointed out that some lower courts have refused to apply the history test, for example, and said they will not extend Heller outside the home until this court does. Other courts have applied intermediate scrutiny and variations of that. Some have suggested that strict scrutiny would be appropriate to treat this right comparably to other rights under our modern tiers of scrutiny. 
Um, I, I just be curious what 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 views you have about all that. Thank you, Justice Gorsuch. I I think we would start with the idea that text, history, and tradition is an appropriate way to deal with this right. That's what the court said in Heller. I think this court would allow the court to make clear that the same analysis applies outside of the home. And I think this case, like Heller, is such an outlier uh, that the court wouldn't have to say too much more unless it wanted to. I think if it wanted to, though, it would already, I think, go a long way to correcting some of the mistakes in the lower court to say that text, history, and tradition is the test, not part of the test, but the test inside and outside the home. And if this court prefers to go the level of scrutiny route, I would simply say two things. One, we would prefer strict scrutiny as being consistent with a fundamental constitutional right. But even if it's going to be intermediate scrutiny, probably the single most important thing to remind the lower courts is that intermediate scrutiny requires narrow tailoring. And a law like this that takes a person who has no proclivity whatsoever, unlike the surety laws, to misuse firearms um, and says you simply can't carry them for self-defense anywhere frequented by the public because you haven't demonstrated an atypical need, I mean, that's about as untailored a law as I can imagine. So I think if you did one of those two things, either make clear that it's text, history, and tradition outside the home as well as inside, or make clear that narrow tailoring is an integral component of the test, that would go a long way to clearing up some of the confusion in the lower courts. I know um, uh, you, you've uh, had a substantial debate with your friends on the other side about the statute of Northampton. We haven't heard about that today, and I just wanted to give you a chance. Thank you, Justice Gorsuch. I'd say just a couple of quick things about the statute of Northampton. First of all, I think that it was very clear from the Knight's case and the treatises that this court relied on in Heller that by the time of the framing of the English Bill of Rights, that was not a general prohibition on carrying outside the home, but was a prohibition on either carrying unusual and dangerous weapons or using common weapons in a way that terrorized the public. And so I don't think that that supports the other side's uh, position here. And the second thing I would say is that probably the single most obvious point about the history is there just are no reported cases on this side of the Atlantic, not in actual reporters, not in newspaper reports about crimes of the day that show anybody being prosecuted for a violation of the Northampton crime simply by carrying common firearms for self-defense. And the one U.S. early court that dealt with this, the common law equivalent of the statute, with state against Huntley in North Carolina, which was an opinion that was cited favorably in the majority opinion in Heller. And that case went out of its way to say that simply carrying firearms per se is not an offense. It's the intent to terrorize the people that is prohibited by Northampton. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh. Mr. Klein, I have several questions. Uh, first, uh, I want to make sure um, I understand your main problem here with this permitting regime as I understand it, is the discretion uh, that's involved with the permitting officials and uh, your point that that's just not how we do constitutional rights, where we allow blanket discretion to grant or deny something for all sorts of reasons. <clears throat> but I understand you would not uh, object or do not object to the regimes that are used in many of the other 42 states, the shall issue regimes. I mean, there could be particular problems with those but I do not understand you to object to shall issue regimes. Is that accurate? 
That's accurate, Justice Kavanaugh. And as you say, there are the, you know, especially if you have something like good moral character, there is the possibility for discretionary abuse in those regimes as well. But the thrust of this case is, you know, we, we'd like what they're having. We'd like what the people in the other 43 states are allowed to do and exercise their rights. And in many of those states, it's shall issue. Um, and, and that is, of course, you know, New York purports to have effectively a shall issue regime with respect to hunting. The only other caveat I wanted to add is it's the discretion combined with the atypicality requirement. So if they came up with some, you know, sort of like magic wand that gave them a precise reading of typicality, um, and so there was no discretion, but the standard was still at the end of the day, you have to show that you are atypical from the rest of the people protected by the Second Amendment. We would have a problem with that as well. Right. A shall issue regime with an atypicality requirement would be no good in your view. Exactly. Even if it could be somehow it could come up with some objective standard typicality. Okay. And the issue before us, as I understand it, is the permitting regime. We don't have to answer all the sensitive places questions in this case, some of which will be challenging, no doubt. That accurate? That's 100% accurate, and it's there's sort of a market test of the accuracy of that, which is New York does have sensitive place laws, and we have not challenged them in this litigation. Then to follow up on Justice uh, Thomas's question and also Justice Gorsuch's, uh, we should focus on American law and the text of the Constitution, and we don't start the analysis in a vacuum. We started with the text, which you say grants a right to carry, and then historical practice can justify certain kinds of regulations, but the baseline is always the right established in the text, and there'll be tough questions as the question, uh, arguments revealed about what the historical practice shows, but the default or baseline is the text. Right? That, that, that's absolutely right, Justice Kavanaugh, and of course, that's no different from something like the First Amendment, where of course you start with the text, and it's very emphatic text, you know, no law abridging speech. But then you look to history and tradition just to realize, oh, well, there's a long tradition of treating defamation and libel different going back to the framing. So you use that history to inform the text. But it, the focus is on the text. And last question, uh, following up on Justice Gorsuch's question, as he points out, some courts have used it, intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny. Um, you know, those are balancing tests. I think Professor Alicia's amicus brief is very helpful on that. There's well-developed law in other areas. Uh, but it'll be no surprise to you. I'm concerned that that would just be a balancing test that would leave it up, make it a policy test, basically, for the courts. Uh, and I don't know why we would uh, – you say you'd be okay with that, but I'm not sure why we would smuggle all that into here, and then it would just be uh, a policy judgment that would be uh, unanchored from the historical practice. So just, Kevin, two points just in response to that. One, you know, as, as you articulate the concerns with interesting balancing, that might be a reason that if you're going to go with the level of scrutiny's approach, you would go to strict scrutiny, where I just think there's less play in the joints. But uh, the second I – mean, I, Maybe, uh, but what's a compelling interest? Do you have a compelling uh, – there's a lot of play in the joints in, in some of the other areas, so I don't know that you want to open that door. And, 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 and the second point I was going to make, though, Justice Kavanaugh, which is maybe more consonant with the thrust of the question, is, uh, you know, whatever was the case in Heller, where I, I sort of read the majority opinion as actually already rejecting interesting balancing, but whatever was the case in Heller, you know, we now have this 13 years of experience with lower courts applying the test. And in, in our view, you know, they've made a muddle of it, and, the, you know, it's, it's probably the experience of the last 13 years is probably a very good reason to prefer a text, history, and tradition approach to this area of the law. Thank you. Justice Barrett? 
Um, Mr. Clement, I have one question. So a couple of times um, in response to my question about Times Square and New Year's Eve, and then just now as well, uh, to Justice Kavanaugh, you made reference to the First Amendment. And obviously a lot of the questions that have been asked have been focused on how do we, um, how can the state fairly regulate? Um, because everybody agrees there have to be some regulations, and it might not be the case that we can always find exact historical analogs. So turning to the First Amendment, response to me, you said, well, that might be analogous to a time, place, and man restriction. So do you think the First Amendment and the, you know, edifices that we have uh, structured around it would be a helpful place to look? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I I'm suggesting that there is a lot of useful teaching in the First Amendment. I'm not sure I'm suggesting you should just take sort of doctrines lock, stock, and barrel from the First Amendment. But, you know, I mean, going back you know, well over 100 years to like Robertson, when the court was just talking in dictum about the First and the Second Amendment, it drew the analogy between allowing some restrictions on the Second Amendment and in the First Amendment context, the First Amendment being consistent with libel and defamation. As I suggested to the Chief Justice, I think the way you think about a non-public forum and why that's different from First Amendment purposes from a park I think could be useful in some of these contexts. You know, if you focus on the nature of the location, you might say this is inappropriate for weapons. But I, in the same way as in the First Amendment, you just don't get to say, well, we're going to make it a non-public forum by saying no First Amendment activity there. You can't just take a location and say we're going to make this a sensitive place by saying no Second Amendment activity there. So those kind of analogies and, lastly, the analogy being you look at a law that says – no concealed carry in a particular place on one night of the year, quite differently from a law like this that says there's really no way for a typical New Yorker to conceal carry anywhere uh, that the general public is allowed to go. Those Under the First Amendment, those are radically different laws, and I think under the Second Amendment, those are radically different laws. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. General Underwood. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For centuries, English and American law have imposed limits on carrying firearms in public in the interest of public safety. The history runs from the 14th century Statute of Northampton, which prohibited carrying arms in fairs and markets and other public gathering places, to similar laws adopted by half of the American colonies and states in the founding period, to later state laws that relaxed restrictions for people who had a concrete need for armed self-defense. Starting as early as the early 1800s, states began taking different approaches to regulating firearms carrying in public. Some states provided that a person who carried firearms in public without reasonable cause could be arrested and required to post a bond. Other states made it a misdemeanor to carry a handgun without reasonable grounds to fear an attack. Other states and territories began banned carrying handguns in towns and cities altogether or restricted it to situations of immediate threat. And in the early 1900s, many states made good cause a requirement for a license to carry a concealed handgun, while also prohibiting, in some cases, the open carrying of handguns. In total, from the founding era through the 20th century, at least 20 states have, at one time or another, either prohibited all carrying of handguns in populous areas or limited it to those with good cause. New York law fits well within that tradition of regulating public carry. 
It makes a carry license available to any person, not disqualified, who has a non-speculative reason to carry a handgun for self-defense. <coughs> New York is not an outlier in the extent to which the state restricts the ability to carry firearms in public, and it's not an outlier in asking a licensed applicant to show good cause for a carry license. Many ordinary people have received carry licenses in New York State. If the court has questions about how the law works in practice, it should remand for fact-finding. And if the court finds the history ambiguous, it should review the law under intermediate scrutiny and uphold. Uh, General Underwood, you seem to rely a bit on the density of the uh, population. You say, I think, that states like New York have uh, high-density areas. Um, and the implicit in that is that um, the more rural an area is, the more unnecessary a strict rule is. So when you, uh, when you suggest that, how rural does the area have to be before uh, your restrictions uh, shouldn't apply? Well, um, I, I think the way the New York statute works is consistent with a reasonable rule, which is that there's not a cutoff, there's not a number at which things change, but that licenses, unrestricted licenses, are much more readily available in more, in, in less densely populated upstate counties than they are in uh, dense metropolitan areas. And that is a virtue of the system of having licenses handled by licensing officers who are part of the local community um, and who take uh, the density of population into account as well as the many other factors. Well, the Mr. Nash lives in a quite a low density area. That's why I'm interested in where your cutoff is. Uh, it's one thing to talk about Manhattan or NYU's campus. It's another to talk about uh, rural upstate New York. He actually lives in what I would call an intermediate area. He lives in Rensselaer County, which is not that far from Albany, and it contains the city of Troy and a university and um, a downtown shopping district, but it also contains uh, substantial rural areas. And that is precisely what the licensing officer here was taking into account when he made the differentiation between, you know, don't take it to the shopping mall, don't take it downtown, but, but you can take it in the, in the sort of backcountry areas. Thank you. General, you, you mentioned that the, the gun is, I, I guess permits are more readily available in a less populated area. Uh, unrestricted permits. Unrestricted permits. Are, are more readily available in less populated areas, yeah. Now, Heller relied on the right to defense uh, uh, as a basis for its reading of the of the Second Amendment, or that was its reading. Now, I would think that arises in more populated areas. If you're out in the woods, it's pretty likely you're going to run into someone who's going to rob you on the street. Uh, on the other hand, there are uh, places in a, in a densely populated city where it's more likely that that's where you're going to need a gun for self-defense. And, uh, you know, however many... Uh, 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 policemen are assigned, uh, you know, there are high crime areas. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that's 
probably the last place that someone's going to get a permit to carry a gun. How is that, regardless of what we think of the policy, that how is that consistent with Heller's reasoning that the reason the Second Amendment flies a black personal right is for self-defense? Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. One, we, if you go right to history and tradition, the history was to um, regulate most strenuously in densely populated places. That's what fairs and markets are. So we have history. But we also have a rationale for that history, which is that where there is dense population, there is also the deterrent of lots of people, and there is the availability of law enforcement. In in England, the idea was that it was the king's peace, and it was, in fact, an insult to the king for people to take things into their own hands. Well, but that's not always true. Uh, it depends, obviously, in the uh, jurisdiction and all that, but simply because a place is, well, it's paradoxical that you say a place is a high crime area, but don't worry about it because there are a lot of police around well, and the other thing is that this is that these regulations are all an effort to accommodate the right to, to recognize and, and respect the right of self-defense while regulating it to protect um, the public safety. And in areas where people are packed densely together, as the questioning that just happened um, displays, um, the risks of harm from people who are packed shoulder to shoulder all having guns are much more acute than they are. Oh, having. sure. And I can understand, for example, a regulation that says you can't carry a gun into, you know, giant stadium uh, because a lot of things are going on there and it may not be safe to have for people. On the other hand, if the purpose of the Second Amendment is to allow people to protect themselves, that's implicated when you're in a high crime area. It's not implicated when you're out in the woods. Well, I... Um uh, I think it is implicated when you're out in the woods. It's just a different set of problems. I mean, yeah, you're, you're deserted there, and you can't. And law enforcement is not available to come to your aid if something does happen. But, well, how many muggings take place in the forest? Um, if we, if we, uh, how many do you think? <laughs> I don't know, but um, I will tell you that our licensing officer told us that rapes and and uh, robberies happen on the deserted bike paths, and that he has some concern about that. So, I mean, um, I take your point that there is a different risk in the city, but there is also a different public safety consideration. And that is why the licensing officer is meant to take into account not just the risk, but also the, uh, the population and the availability of law enforcement and all these considerations. I, I won't say that the risk, I think it's not correct to characterize the risk as atypical, the risk has to be specific to the person. That what, what the cases say is um, that you can't just say, I'm afraid, because based on facts that are not specific to you. Um, but what Mr. Nash did was convince the licensing officer that his trip to a deserted parking lot every night was sufficient. What if it's, uh, what if it's one of these, um, you know, crime... Ways, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a celebrated uh, spate of murders carried out by a particular person. I don't know who that is, you know, son of Sam or somebody. Is that a good reason to, um, is that a atypical reason? Is that a justification? Some random person is going around shooting people. I'd like to have a firearm even though I didn't feel the need for one before. 
Um, well, I think that uh, it would have to be brought home to you in particular, to your route, to your parking lot, to your, um, you know, your apartment building, but uh, so something specific to you rather than it's happening in the world at large. Um, so uh, I don't that's, that. that's what's meant by something non-speculative. Could I, could, I, could I explore what that means uh, for ordinary law-abiding citizens who feel they need to carry a firearm for self-defense. So I want you to think about people like this, uh, people who work late at night in Manhattan. It might be somebody who cleans offices, might be a doorman at an apartment, might be orderly, might be somebody who watches dishes. None of these people has criminal record. They're all law-abiding. get off work around midnight, maybe even after midnight. They have to be home by subway, maybe by bus. When they arrive at the subway station or the bus stop, they have to walk some distance through a high crime area and they apply for a license and they say, look, nobody has, told, has said, I'm going to mug you next Thursday. However, there have been a lot of muggings in this area and I am scared to death. They do not get licenses, is that right? That is in general right, yes. If there's nothing particular them. That's right. How is that consistent with? All right, all right. Peace to the gods. He's that. It's a long argument. It's like a whole hour. Um, but I think that we have heard enough of it to get the gist of what happened. Right. So, um, if you want to hear more of it, definitely go to Google. Type in New York State. Excuse me, New York Rifle, New York State Rifle Association um, versus Room. You have to check out the rest of that. Quite a long case, and you know there's a lot of conjecture there for you to be able to go through. Uh, next week we'll dive into some more commerce. We'll get back into our commerce conversations next week. I'll give you some more remedies, some new remedies on commerce. We'll talk about that next week. Um, with that said, makemorecommerce.com if you want to get a hold of me. Make sure you sign up for the membership. It's free. All right. And um, stand on your square, man. Have a great week. All right. We out. Holla, holla. Peace.